You're, you're on top of it. You're set. <laughs> you're not old enough to sit there. That's a, that's a privileged position. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our series to what happens when we worship. I think this is the second to last week. And today we're going to be going through the second to last chapter of the book, which is titled Extraordinarily Ordinary Worship. So kind of a, a tricky title. I couldn't say it right for the last two weeks. Um, it's like the ordinary, extraordinary, the ordinary, I don't know. But uh, so we'll get into it here, but I'll just, uh, I'll open us in prayer and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this Lord's Day when you uh, gathered us to be your people on this uh, extraordinarily ordinary day, Lord, where uh, this special time when we actually get to come into your presence, but this regular time that we can count on happening every week, uh, getting to be in your presence and to hear from your word. So may you be with us in this time as we look at your word and look at uh, what, what does happen when we worship, and may you give us a wonder and excitement uh, as we come into your presence into the worship service uh, later this morning. So we thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And so when we just hear the word ordinary, that might sound not very exciting. It might even sound like a bit of a um, uh, demeaning or negative term. Uh, today, when you hear, oh, that's an ordinary person or that's an ordinary life, you kind of think, well, that must be boring or unexciting. Is that person really making a mark? Uh, today, there's so much talk about Reaching your full potential, doing something extraordinary with your life, making a, an impact in a big way. And we even see that uh, on social media and things where people try and present their life as being uh, very vibrant in, in saturated colors, uh, doing this and that, going here and there, and, and making your life seem very exciting. And when you look at that and you think about your life uh, and you think, wow, well, compared to that, my life is very ordinary. And of course, people's lives are almost never like what they present on social media, but that's, in this world, uh, what, what has currency, what, what looks exciting and trendy. So ordinary just doesn't, doesn't usually make the cut in today's uh, day and age. So when we talk about worshiping ordinary, of course, that, that makes us think, well, is there really power in that? Is there power in the ordinary? We're looking for extraordinary things uh, to actually have power. And it, it reminded me when I was just thinking of this, of one of my favorite books, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien talks a lot about uh, power in these books, where uh, Sauron is, is this dark lord, this powerful uh, wielder of magic, and he, he imposes, um, he exercises power by imposing his will on other people by manipulating people with magic. But then um, you have on the other side, on, on the good team, uh, on the people who are trying to fight for freedom are these little hobbits, these little creatures who are small of stature, they're farmers, they enjoy good food and the rural life, of uh, simple life. But uh, it's them and they who are ultimately the ones who bring down 
uh, Sauron, this dark lord. And uh, Gandalf is one of the characters, the wizard Gandalf uh, says in the book, he says, well, I have found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folks, ordinary folks, uh, that keep the darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. And I love this theme throughout Tolkien's writings. C.S. Lewis talks about this, but the power of the ordinary, the things that we often overlook, and we think, well, that's not extraordinary. There can be no power there to really make a change, a difference, an impact. But really that it is through the ordinary that uh, things are changed. And I think that's something that we must keep in mind as we approach this topic of worship, that it can be so tempting to think that worship must appear extraordinary. And if it doesn't, then can there really be any change or impact? After all, the world we live in, especially today, is it's flashy, it's consumeristic. We see advertisements for the next new big thing in, in bold colors. You must always have the next uh, new thing, the upgrade. And, and so we might think that if these are the things that are capturing our attention in the day-to-day, -day, in the week-to-week, -week, then so we must also have this uh, in worship. Uh, but we're going to look at, well, what is worship? Uh, what does it mean that worship is ordinary? But first, uh, I think it would be important to look at two extreme tendencies that we might have in worship. And that's uh, novelty on the one hand and tradition on the other hand. So, when considering novelty first, um, as I've noted, this world that we live in, um, in the current time, is very flashy and, and it tries to capture the eye. And that's not just a, a modern thing, that's been a human tendency for all time. Uh, we look at new ideas that come about, even in the church. I think someone says is, is, it's boredom and creativity that leads to new heresies in the church people getting tired of the old things. But that's also the case with just life in general. Variety is the spice of life. We like to try new things. But that can often seep into worship, in our worship service where we think that we must have a, a rock concert uh, to actually get people's attention. That the same old thing that maybe was good for the previous generation is not good enough for us now. It can't reach the modern person. So we must adjust uh, the content of the worship service to speak to the modern human. So that's kind of on the one side, novelty. So we see churches doing different things. Maybe they have a, a play instead of a sermon, or a, we're gonna watch a movie. I've seen that before. Uh, some churches have sung a modern uh, Taylor Swift in their, we're gonna sing Taylor Swift in our worship service. Uh, or we're gonna have a dance routine. Uh, to speak about the attributes of God. And these are all things that maybe catch the eye, uh, but they're novel, and we'll look at why these things are, why we don't do those things in the church. Um, just one reason, just at the front, uh, G.K. Chesterton speaks a lot about uh, the ordinary life in contrast to novelty and the new big thing. And he talks about, well... When someone tells me, oh, there's this new invention or this new trend that's here to stay and change the world, he says, well, as soon as I hear that, I know that's going to be the first thing out the door next. As soon as it comes, it's just as quick to leave. And that's what uh, many churches uh, in their worship try to organize it so that 
we're going to stay on the wave of this trend. But how long is that there to last? Well, the other extreme is tradition. Because novelty is not in and of itself a bad thing. But tradition is not in and of itself a good thing. We can also say that, okay, worship, we can't make it just an ordinary, everyday thing. We must give it gravitas with tradition. And so you have churches, for instance, in, in the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, where there would be rooted traditions that are, have been added to what Scripture has said of worship, that people come expecting a, a special feeling of gravitas with, uh, with incense in certain, um, certain religious traditions that have been added. And there's thought that, okay, just the fact of those traditions, um, that in itself gives power to the worship service. But as we'll see, that's just not the case. Whether it's novelty or tradition, neither of things in and of themselves uh, give power. So where does the power come from in the worship service? What is it that makes a worship service effective? Is it the new best thing that grabs the attention that brings someone in? Is it the tradition that says, ah, oh, I'm, I'm standing in the, the footsteps of generations that have come before that have done all these great things and I'm continuing to do those things? Well, we see when we open scripture that neither of these places is the source of, of power in God's work. I'd like just to read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, a little bit of a, a passage here where Paul, Paul speaks about uh, the power uh, that he is coming to, to preach. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and message were not plausible in words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed from the ages for our glory. We get a very stark description here of where the power of, of preaching in the ministry of the church comes from. In this passage, Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. Uh, the power of the world with the, the weakness that he comes to them as he presents the gospel. We see that... In the ministry of the word, uh, there is a distinction. It looks different from what we would consider the power of the world. Paul does not come with lofty speech, with eloquence and showiness. He does not come with the new, most novel uh, techniques of, of uh, rhetoric for the purpose of manipulation uh, to bring about an emotional response or to bring about uh, a a crowd due to his trendy speech and eloquent wisdom, he comes preaching uh, the gospel, which, as he says elsewhere, is the power of God unto salvation. Not that it's not wisdom, but as the word elsewhere says, uh, the wisdom of God is, is foolishness to man. So this would be in contrast to the idea of novelty. 
We preach the consistent word of God and not a novel thing. And then we see in Isaiah 55, God says that his word does not return void. It's the power, um, the power of God is in his word. So what can we conclude from these things? Paul's speaking about where the power of uh, the ministry comes from. Well, we can now, we can look at a, a question, and that is, uh, well, what is it about worship that gives it its power? And the common theme is that the power of God comes through the things that he commands in Scripture. The things that God has given us to do are the things that he promises to exercise his power in. So he has commanded the church to carry out the ministry of preaching the word, and that's where the power is at. Because God promises to work by his spirit, as Paul said, uh, in the spirit and of power. That was the demonstration, his preaching, the gospel was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And that's where God promises to work. So what's the implication of this? Well, the implication of this is that anything that humans add to worship does not carry the power of God. Because it does not carry his authorization. So if we're looking to have an extraordinary experience in worship where we experience the power of God, we must rely on the ordinary things that God has given us. If we decide to add uh, certain, uh, certain things to the worship service, whether it be a play or a, uh, a concert or adding uh, you know, secular music or whatever it may be to bring people in, well, you might get a crowd, you might get a showing, but there's no power there. It may seem like worldly power. It draws a crowd. People get very hyped and excited about it. But where's the actual power of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit works through the Word and the ordinary means of grace, the sacraments. So I'd like to just uh, pause there. We've looked at yeah, novelty, tradition, um, and then where the actual power of worship is. I wanted to see if there are any questions on what we've talked about so far. Jeanette's looking at Mino as if... Uh... She's just checking that I don't say anything stupid. Okay. <laughs> well, let's just move on and not uh, give any more opportunity for that. Um, <clears throat> yo. Yo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but this is, this is counterintuitive. The ordinary worship, as we've talked about, it. I think as we've already seen just now, you may have got a hint in, as we'll see just in the last little bit of this talk, this Sunday school, is this covers a lot of the themes we've talked about. The regulative principle of worship, where God is, we only do what God has commanded us to do. Uh, the dialogical principle of worship, where uh, we're actually in dialogue with God. Uh, he speaks to us through his word, and we respond in prayer. These are things that scripture commands. And that's where the power is at, because we're actually... Uh, interacting with a God relationally who is sustaining us by his Holy Spirit in power. And so if we add anything to that, we're breaking the dialogue. We're uh, doing something unauthorized by God where he has not promised uh, to uh, carry out. Um, yeah, he's not promised to carry out um, uh, his promises uh, to us in those things that are unauthorized. And you see examples of this in, in church history. Uh, even thinking of in the American church, uh, Charles Finney was a big character in the 
uh, in the Second Great Awakening in the United States, and he used techniques uh, that were not sanctioned by scripture. He used techniques such as um, something called the anxious bench, where you'd come, and, and if you weren't a believer, if you were someone struggling with sin, they'd say, okay, we're going to stick you in the front row, and we're going to, all of us pray for you, and we're going to uh, pressure you, and you can't leave that seat until you're converted or until you've been forgiven. Um, and then he used all sorts of kind of techniques uh, that we might say have uh, roots in psychology, sociology. He, he'd... He kind of studied these things and saw how people responded, and he used these techniques to try and get conversions, try and uh, bring about an awakening. But the interesting thing is that in those same areas that the Second Great Awakening swept through, where Charles Finney, uh, a lot of his, he worked, where he worked and when other people who took his techniques worked, those areas became known as the burnt-out district. Uh, those regions uh, became very unreligious or um, they became, and, and they became a hotbed for cults. That's where a number of cults, uh, you had the, the Seventh-day uh, Adventists, um, you had Jehovah's Witness, you had a number of either cults or Anabaptist traditions that kind of deviated from orthodoxy came out of those, those areas. And then you had a lot of people who just became fed up with the second, like this awakening's coming through and we're, we're no longer religious. And we see then that there's no lasting power in that. There's no fruit of the Spirit's work because the ordinary means of worship were not uh, followed through on. They were not um, held to faithfully. Another conclusion of this, uh, what we've been talking about, is that worship is a timeless thing. The worship service uh, is timeless. And that's somewhat different than tradition because it's not the tradition of men it's timeless because the word of God is timeless. Uh, how God acts with his people is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, because he is the same. His word endures forever. It does not return void. Uh, the flower withers, the grass fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we do not rely on tradition as being the antidote to the changing times and the shifting of our culture. We don't say... Uh, we'll look to our traditional, um, like let's say the Catholic Church, our succession of popes, uh, through tradition that, you've, that we hold on to where you can come and you can count that there's going to be the incense, there's going to be these certain uh, uh, things said that specifically the Catholic Church has said for several hundred years. That's not the antidote to, to the shifting culture. The antidote is holding fast to the word of God and what he has commanded, what we have done since the ancient church. And in a sense, this is actually attractive to today's world because in the shifting this and that of you must have the next big thing, you must be doing this or that to have a happy life, and it changes every day, there's a sense of attractiveness where we can say, actually, uh, the ordinary uh, rhythm of coming to hear God's word every week uh, there is a power in that. But isn't ordinary uh, boring and ineffective? I think that would be something that we'd, we might come across where people say, well, you're doing the same thing every week, in essence. You come, you hear the call to worship, you sing songs, you hear the word of God. Doesn't that get boring? And this also reminds me of something that uh, G.K. Chesterton um, spoke about in his book, Orthodoxy. 
he talks about how repetition, people often think, is a sign of, of death and tiredness, boredom. Doing the same thing every day uh, is more an evidence of clockwork in the absence of life rather than the presence of life. Uh, but he argues that actually uh, repetition and rhythm is a sign of life. For when you look at uh, children, uh, they have a lot of energy and children will continue to say, especially as infants, will say, do it again, uh, do it again, do it again. And the adult is exhausted by the, by the end of their, their play session with their kids. They're, I don't want to do it again. I, I'm, I'm worn out. And Chesterton says that this is actually, our boredom is a sign rather of death and decay and fatigue that we get worn out by the extraordinary things of this world. As we age, we get tired of seeing the sunrise. We get tired of seeing the same flowers. Uh, whereas he says, maybe God gets uh, delighted. He's delighted to say, may the sun rise again. May the sun rise again. I've made uh, billions of daisies, but let's make another daisy just like the rest because each one is beautiful. So there's actually a sense of beauty and life in the ordinary means of grace. And just like we can count on the sun rising, because the sun rises uh, under the sustaining power of our Lord, because he delights in it, so we can also count on uh, the means of grace, the power of the word spoken and the Lord's Supper and baptism, because pro God promises that just like he makes the sun rise on the wicked and the righteous alike, so God promises that every week when his faithful people come, that he will uh, give us his Lord's Supper, that he, will give us, uh, that he will give us his supper, his meal to feed us, and that he will give us his word. And that when we partake in baptism, in faith, that he actually uh, promises to make those things effective. Which is actually quite an astounding thing. We don't have to come to worship wondering, okay, um, is God gonna, is there gonna be a moving of the spirit today? Um, is the music gonna hit just right uh, to make me feel the spirit's uh, work? We can actually come and we can be assured that just as much as we can count on the sun rising each day, so we can count on the Lord's work in our heart. And we can compare this even with what God does uh, in creation. We see in Genesis that creation um, is upheld and, and uh, comes into being by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is hovering over the void. And there's, we can even think of that as, as the Spirit working energetic power so that when God, uh, when the Father speaks, uh, the Spirit actually brings about and makes effective the Word of God in creating the world. And similarly, uh, the Spirit is actively upholding the world around us. If, if God were not actively sustaining this world, it would immediately go into non-existence. It is God's sustaining word by his Spirit that upholds it. And yet this is very ordinary, right? I mean, we don't, we don't often think and thank the Lord. Uh, we do sometimes thank the Lord for his work in creation and sustaining, but we often, we often think, well... But to really see the Lord's work, it would be amazing to see a miracle. And we often, when we do see miracles, the Lord does work uh, in extraordinary means. But we often think that that's more a work of God than 
the rest of creation that we see around us, the normal processes, the ordinary rhythm of life, we often think is more mechanical, less the work of God than the miracles that we might think of. But in fact, God is at work just as much. His power is just as much uh, at work in creation. Uh, the only re reason we can call something supernatural is because it deviates from the ordinary. And the ordinary is ordinary because God's power ensures that these things continue, and he actively sustains, sustains them. And that's a wonderful thought. And so in the same way in worship, we don't look for the extraordinary things that stand out. Those things certainly do happen. We have certain experiences in life where we, uh, we see God at work in our life in a, in a uh, maybe a, a miraculous way outside of the ordinary. We might see God at work. But that's not something that we count on, nor is it something that we rely on for our faith. Instead, we rely on the fact that by the Holy Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit sustains this creation, the Holy Spirit uh, works a new creation in our hearts regularly through the rhythm of coming to meet with the Lord every week. And we see that in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 says that this, the Holy Spirit um, is the spirit of the age to come. And actually in worship uh, works the powers of the age to come in us. That when we assemble for worship each week, the power of the age to come, the new creation is actually at work. And we can count on that. That by the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord is working a new creation in you. And so in light of that, how could we think that anything that we can come up with humans uh, can add to that? Can we really add something to worship to the worship service, uh, something extraordinary that would, that would have more power than the Spirit bringing the power of the age to come, which is a promise that is yours when you come to this worship service as one who is uh, one of God's people, that is a promise for you. And oftentimes we don't think about this because uh, we come and we can get fatigued with the ordinary. And I think next week we're gonna be talking about what we do to prepare for worship. And part of that is coming with a frame of mind, realizing that I am coming uh, expecting uh, in faith, knowing in uh, hope and assurance that the Lord will work through these ordinary means and he'll work something extraordinary, something that is not often seen and visible as a powerful thing to the rest of the world, the rest of the world isn't looking and saying, wow, that's going to gather a crowd uh, because by worldly standards, that's flashy, that's novel, or wow, that carries the gravitas of human tradition, and that's something that everyone would want to be a part of. No, it carries the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that worship should be boring in and of itself, that we should try to make it boring. It has a beauty in and of itself, and we should, we should learn to sing beautiful songs with beautiful lyrics that praise the Lord. Uh, the sermon ought to demonstrate and reveal the wonder and beauty of God's word that's already in it. We don't need to add other extraordinary things. It's already uh, within the things that God has given us. The power uh, that we seek, the power of the age to come, is organic to God's word and the word of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. So, I think just to, to boil it down, we might look at this as a difference between uh, pragmatism and then the, the powerful providence of God. Um, 
it can be so tempting to think uh, we must come and, and use pr pragmatic human means to have a certain experience, whether it be through the kind of uh, worship uh, music that is intended more to um, awaken emotional response rather than, uh, as a primary thing, rather than direct, to direct us in worship to God uh, and have emotions follow as part of that. Or we might have uh, extra biblical things that we would add. But rather, uh, we must trust the Lord uh, that this is really a wonderful thing. Uh, is it not enough that we get to meet and have a dialogue with our Lord every Lord's Day? Well, we can be assured that when he calls us to worship, he is present. When we have the Lord's Supper, he brings us into the high heavenlies to the Lord's table by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves in mysterious ways that we, uh, we do not see and fully understand, but we trust it. And we do not need uh, uh, displays of worldly power um, to attain these things. So unlike uh, Sauron in the Lord of the Rings... Uh, the power uh, of the ministry of the word in the church is uh, not magisterial. It's not uh, wielding a power to manipulate and to uh, manipulate people's uh, wills to theirs, but rather it's, it's ministerial. It's simply doing faithfully what the Lord has done and trusting that the Lord will be faithful to his promises to accomplish what he has promised to do in those things. And that takes faith. It's a struggle. It is a struggle for us because we do get fatigued. On this side of the new creation, we get fatigued of worship. We get fatigued of the ordinary because we do not, uh, in our sinfulness, in our, our um, finiteness, our humanness, it, being in a uh, fallen world, uh, we struggle to realize and to grasp what is going on. So we must continually ask for faith, ask the Lord to sustain us by his spirit, and the Lord will be faithful to do that. And I think we'll be uh, talking a bit more about that next week, if I understand, on, on preparing for worship. So with that, I think we're over time. So let's uh, close with prayer. And then if there are any questions, uh, we can talk about it after the service. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that... We can count on you to meet with us every week as you have promised. Uh, that we do not need to rely on, on human means uh, that, are, uh, that vary, that change from time to time. We don't need to rely on fads uh, or even human tradition. Uh, wondering whether these things will, have, uh, will be able to uh, bring us into your presence. Or whether these things will have the power to transform us. Uh, thank you that we can count on your faithfulness, that we can count on the ordinariness of worship because we can count on your promises, Lord. So as we move into the worship service, may you prepare our hearts, uh, prepare us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.